If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it means to take personal and financial risks, create jobs that support your community, and devote most of your time to your business. But do you know how to plan for a successful exit from your business? Do you know who should be involved in creating your succession or transition plan and the steps along the way? Welcome to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. The podcast theme is inspired by critically acclaimed business author, Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. In this podcast, you'll hear success stories of exit plans done right and pick up practical tips based on years of legacy business advisors' expertise and knowledge about the largest and most important financial transaction of your life. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Finish Big with your host, Mark Dorman. And it is a very special day today. Mark, tell us what's happening. Well, Wendy, uh, good afternoon. And uh, I cannot tell you uh, how excited I am to be joined by the legend himself, Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, uh, and really the uh, forefather of this show. Bo, we're so glad you're here. And thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Mark, for doing this. Delighted, delighted. I can't uh, thank you for all your help uh, and all your wisdom throughout the years. So uh, I want to just give a sense uh, to our listeners, many of whom I'm sure have heard you for the first time, but you have written some of the all-time best business books, including Small Giants, The Great Game of Business, The Knack, Street Smarts, A Stake in the Outcome, and your most recent work, Finish Big. But before we get to the topic of Finish Big itself, I wanted to give a sense of maybe your professional history, your background. You've been with Inc., Forbes, you've written, as I said, several books, but maybe you can give us just a, a little career timeline, if you will. Certainly. I have to say that I was I started out as a freelance journalist. This was early on. This was in the 1970s. And uh, anyone who's a freelance journalist knows that it's feast or famine, mainly famine. A bit like um, a starving artist, I imagine, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, in addition, I had I was married and, and my wife and I had two children mm. who were young. Obviously, they were infants or toddlers. And I was responsible for supporting the family. And it became obvious that I couldn't do that on <clears throat> if I was just going to be a freelance journalist or freelance writer. Mm -hmm. So I began looking for a real job. <laughs> and I got a call from a headhunter and who uh, who told me that she had been hired by Fidelity to find a writer. And I said, well, they certainly don't want me. I, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, which was true at that time, actually. And she said, no, 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 they can teach you all that. They're happy to teach you. They want somebody who can write. And I said, well, I, I can write. I'll go and talk to them. So I went and talked to the people who were looking for a writer. And I guess they liked me. They offered me the job. And so I took the job at Fidelity as one of the writers in their sort of corporate communications department. 
And basically what I did is I wrote speeches for, um, and I, I wrote for the different funds at Fidelity. Fidelity is mainly, you know, mutual funds. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and, and uh, I mean, they have a stock brokerage as well, but it's mainly, it's sort of known for its mutual funds. And I, so I would, I would write, there were a couple of funds that was my responsibility to write the quarterly, semi-annual and annual reports, which I did. The whole experience, I was there for a year and the whole experience was completely eye-opening for me. Wow. You have to understand my background, as much as I've written about business and as much as we're going to talk about business, I was about as anti-business as you could be young, earlier in my life. And so when I took this job at Fidelity, it was really the first time that I'd actually been inside a company mm. and was a very eye-opening to me. It was not at all what I imagined. Uh, these were very interesting people. They were very smart people. Mm -hmm. They were trying to do the right things, trying to do good in the world. And I liked them. Yeah. And, and what, uh, was this during the 70s? This was this was actually in 1980. 1980, yeah, because the mutual fund industry really was launched uh, in the uh, the late 70s, early 80s, and so that got your feet wet into the business world. Uh, but you spent a big bulk of your career with Inc. Magazine, correct? That's right. In fact, that started after I'd been at Fidelity for a year. I got a call from a friend of mine who had been an editor at Boston Magazine. And as of when I had been a freelance journalist, I had written articles for him at Boston Magazine. And he had moved to this startup magazine called Inc. Magazine mm -hmm. that was three and a half years old. And he said that, that they were looking for journalists who had, who, who had, had written for sort of general interest journal magazines, which I had. I'd written for Esquire and Harper's and other mm -hmm. places. Um, and But who knew something about business? Well, I'd been at Fidelity for a year, so yeah. obviously I knew something about business, not very much. But my, uh, in, my research, in my research, uh, prior to Inc. Magazine, there was never really a publication that catered to small business in America. And I think that Inc. That's was true. kind of that. They, they put their stake in the ground right there and started that that whole genre, if you will. Interestingly enough, there were two magazines in that space that were started in the same month, April of 1979. The other one was called Venture Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and it eventually disappeared. Why did it disappear? It disappeared, I believe, because it, it couldn't figure out whether or not it was writing for entrepreneurs or was it writing for investors, for people who wanted to invest in these companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that confusion really made it impossible, I think, for its writers and editors to, to know exactly what to focus on. Inks, really, thanks to our owner and leader, Bernard Goldhirsch, who had start, who had founded the company, Bernie um, 
made it very clear to all of us that we were writing for the individual who was on, as he put it, the rocky voyage from the startup phase to the fully managed company. That's who we were writing for. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that allowed us, that's what allowed us to um, put out a magazine that turned out to be much more viable than venture. Venture went out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And little did you know back then uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, when you joined Inc that you were basically following the journey of the baby boomer business owner. And here we are. I just turned 58 last week. Uh, You're a youngster. Yeah. But you've got now (laughs) tens of thousands of business owners that may have read Inc. Magazine over the years that uh, are now looking to, quote unquote, finish big. Right. And so throughout your careers at Inc., one of the questions that I've been dying to ask you is how many business owners do you think you've interviewed over the years? Well, it's in the thousands. Oh, yeah. The the question is, is it 100,000 or is it 200,000? I don't know. When you work at something for 40 years and your job is to talk to people and to interview people, you wind up talking to lots and lots of people. Yeah. And I've never sat down to really make a serious estimate, but I know it's very high. Sure. That is a that is a Bo Burlingham mic drop moment there, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Probably in the at least tens to 20s to 30s of thousands. So throughout this journey um, at Inc., you then obviously had the itch to and you gained the knowledge and the insight and the obviously have the gift of writing, but you came across some pretty individual, pretty interesting individuals, Norman Brodsky being one, Jack Stack being another. What was the, your kind of initial foray into publishing, you know, authoring books, writing books and going through that process? Walk, walk us through that process, if you will. Well, I had long before Inc., I had tried to write a book unsuccessfully a couple of times. Um, but I, I, um, I sort of still had the itch to do it and the opportunity came up when Jack with Jack Stack and Jack was a guy who we came across who was doing weird things for this company in Springfield, Missouri. I mean, he, he was, uh, getting all the employees involved in uh, understanding and running the company open book management right yes that term didn't exist but that's right they they called what they were doing the great game of business because basically they said forget what you've heard about business it's not they talked to guys on the shop floor i mean they were a remanufacturing company which believe me, is the least glamorous business out sure. there. That's basically, a, that's a... basically, you're getting these big engines coming in that are used, they are worn down, and you know they're covered with, they're grimy. Oh, yeah, that's a dirty business, so to speak. Yep. It is, it is. And uh, um, they, so they were going to the guys on the shop floor and say, forget what you've heard about business. 
it's not really that complicated. It's a game. And like any game, the only way you're going to be able to play it is number one, you got to know what the rules are. Mm-hmm. No, number two, you've got to get enough information so that you can follow the action and keep score. And number three, you need to care about whether or not you win or lose. Yeah. In yeah. other words, you need, you need a stake in the outcome. And they said, okay, well, we're going to set up this whole company around those principles. And we had written about it in, in Inc. magazine. And I had been very involved in, in that story. I, uh, it's a long story that, but I won't go into, but it's, uh, I was fascinated by it. And when I met Jack Stack for the first time, I told him that of all the stories we'd written since I'd been at Inc. Magazine, the story we'd done on him and uh, on SRC was the one that I most identified with and, and thought was the best. And there happened to be a publisher sitting next to us. Mm. And she uh, heard me say this and said, turned to me and said, well, why don't you write the book? And I, I said, well, I've got another job. I was executive editor <laughs> big time. And, but I, it was very enticing to me. And I talked to my boss, who was the editor-in-chief, George Gendron, and a good friend of mine as well. And I asked him what he thought. And he said, well, I have to say, you seem more energized about this than anything else in the last (laughs) year or two. So why don't you go and do it? And I, I was really very thankful for that. And I had to have a new title. I stopped being executive editor and I became editor at large, ah. which is a great title. If you're looking for uh, a title after you retire or you go on to something else, just say you're at large. At large, right? Uh, yeah. Or of counsel. No, no, There's another good one, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, yeah. Nobody really knows what you're doing. And so anyway, I became editor at large and I worked and I with work with Jack and we wrote the great game of business and it came out in 1983. It attracted a following. There were Mm -hmm. people who read it. I mean, there were a lot of people who thought Jack was crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would come to Inc 500 events and he talked to the Inc 500 CEOs who were at the conference and uh, they would shake their heads thinking this was nuts. Now you can't open Why up your you? books to your employees, right? You got to keep everything secret, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it was, it, it, well, what if your competitors saw it? Yeah. And uh, if they see what the books are, aren't they going to just ask for more money? You know, why would you do this? And, but in fact, Jack was proving them all wrong. Yeah. Because they started, they were a leverage buyout. They were probably the worst leverage buyout in history. They were leveraged buyout from International Harvester. They paid, I think it was nine million for the for what the for the factory essentially that they were working in, which was called the Springfield Renew Center. And of that nine million dollars, they put up a hundred thousand dollars. Guys, there were thirteen managers of the right. company. 
and they none of them were wealthy people. Yeah, this was uh, this was they, the leveraged leveraged buyout, right? This was completely leveraged. <laughs> it was they had an eight eighty nine point one eighty nine to one debt to equity ratio. Oh my! Now you're not really alive when that happens. Correct. Yeah, and so, um, but they had using this great game of business. They had completely turned that around. They paid off the, all the debt, and they were growing like crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was, it was a, it was a very, very interesting story. And at a time when what they were doing was so c- contrasting to everything that. Other the people thought was was the right way to run a business, you know. If you ask your accountant or your lawyer, I'm think this is what I'm thinking about doing. Yeah, the, the you know, they would say you're totally out of your mind. Yeah, you got to keep it a secret society, right? But the best, some of the best companies right. and that you've profiled, and I want to move on. Our our guest this afternoon is uh, the acclaimed business author Bo Burlingham, the author of Finish Big, amongst many other books, but. Bo, I want to talk about you kind of the next stage of the evolution of you went from the great game of business and we'll certainly get to finish big uh, here shortly. Uh, and this is going to be a two part series with Bo, ladies and gentlemen. So we hope you turn in for our our next uh, show with Bo. We're going to focus really on the elements of finishing big and what it means to finish big. But I must ask you about small giants because I've read that book probably half a dozen times and you revisit some of the very same owners and finish big that you profiled in small, small giants. And I mean, my gosh, now, you know, thanks to you, uh, there is a, an entire small giants community out there, but these are companies that choose to be great instead of big. Correct. And they have this, what they call this purposeful mission behind them. Can you, can you share with our audience, uh, what it means to be a small giant? That is really the key question that behind behind the book, Small Giants. It, the goal in writing it was to challenge people, uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, all business owners, to say what is it? Whether or not you want to build a big company, you probably want to build a great company, but different people have different definitions of what a great company is. And these were, the small giants were companies, a variety of companies that, you know, had had their own definitions of what a great company was. And it wasn't necessarily being the biggest or getting the, getting to, you know, growing as fast as they mm-hmm. could. Mm-hmm. It was about other things. And it was really about, the relationships that the company had with all the people that it came into contact with, including employees, obviously, and suppliers and customers, uh, of course, above all. And, you know, the community that it operates in it is that the, the companies were striving to have great relationships with all those people. And in their mind, that is what, in their minds, I should say, that is what made a company great. It was its 
impact on the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite stories that you write about and profile is Zingerman's Deli up in Ann Arbor, yeah. Michigan. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they built this whole, what they call the ZCOB, the Zingerman's community of businesses where they essentially partnered with employees and stakeholders and created almost a closed economy of businesses that would support this vision that they had of what it meant to be a great company, not necessarily the biggest delicatessen. They're certainly not McDonald's by any stretch, but I mean, everyone knows them. And now from what I've read, their online orders are you know ridiculous. Can you sh- share, share us a little bit about Zingerman specifically? Well, Zingerman's is really where the whole idea of, for small giants started. Really? Uh, yes. I had uh, done an article uh, about them for Inc. Magazine. It was a cover story, and it, the cover line was the coolest small company in America. Huh. And um, basically, it was a company that had started in 1982. There were two guys who were sort of in the knocking around the restaurant business in Ann Arbor and who were friends, Ari Weinswag and Paul Saginaw. And basically, they said, you know what Ann Arbor really doesn't have? Ann Arbor is a great place to live, but it doesn't really have a good delicatessen here. Yeah. We should, if we get the opportunity, we should, we should really start one. And well, one thing led to another and the opportunity arose and they decided to start a delicatessen. Hmm. And their goal was for it to be not the biggest delicatessen, to be great and unique. And that is what they proceeded to do with the delicatessen. It became famous as as a delicatessen. And when people would write up the great delicatessens of the world, they'd mention Zabar's in New York and various other ones in other country company in other cities and some in other countries, I suppose. But they'd always mention Zingerman's. Yeah. And 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 Zingerman's was had become a but with within 10 years by 1992 they had they were so successful that they had all kinds of options about what to do and one of them was to establish Zingerman's in other cities around the country that was sort of an obvious one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, good franchise there were people coming to them from other cities who wanted to start Zingerman's there. Uh, they could have raised uh, private equity and started Zingerman's around. But they said, look, w- when we started, we wanted to make something great and unique. When you start replicating something, it's not unique by definition. Yeah. And a lot of times it's not very good either. The 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 replicated uh, or the or the, the spinoffs are are not very good, and so they said, "Well, we don't. So we don't want to do that. We've, we should do something else, and but we have to do something because they had gotten to a point where there needed to be some changes in the business, or it would stagnate." Mm-hmm. And they talked it over for literally for two years. Paul and Ari did, and. At the end of that time, in in the course of doing that, they came up with a vision. 
and the vision was what Zingerman should look like 15 years in the future. Now, that's quite a challenge to, to think that far ahead, but sure, they did, yeah, and, they, yeah. and they, they wrote a... Um, they wrote uh, a vision statement called Zingerman's 2009, and it described what the company was going to look like. And it would no longer be just a delicatessen. It would be other businesses, it would be other food-related businesses, yeah. and all of them were going to be in the Ann Arbor area. And each was one they wanted to make great and unique in its own right. So, for example, there'd be a a bakery and there could be a, an ice cream maker, mm -hmm. a cheese maker. There could be a restaurant. You know, there, there are various food related businesses that you could, that you could create uh, using the delicatessen as sort of a base. Yeah. But what I loved and, about their story is that they identified a key employee or an individual who was passionate about this particular other business so a bakery as an example and they gave them a piece of the action right and with their vision their mentorship their guidance they all grew it together in this z-cob this zingerman's community of businesses well there were some of them were did come from inside the business some of yeah. them came from outside i mean there were entrepreneurs who sold their companies who came to ann arbor to start a business as part of the Z-Cob. Yep. Um, and, you know, there were people who had worked for big national accounting firms who would <laughs> left their, you know, their partnerships in order to go bake bread or make gelato wow. or something like that. Can you that. just imagine? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of harkens back, you know, it takes us to, uh, up until today's times where with coming out of COVID and all the folks that kind of started their own businesses and went virtual, just how, the world has changed, but yeah, you know, maybe an appropriate time. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, some of the stories from small giants, but you circled back with the Zingerman companies. Uh, and that's one of my questions and that'll transition into, into our second show here, but what prompted you to write finish big? And what do you think your biggest takeaway? I'm going to do, we're going to do a deep dive in that in our next session together, Bo, but you did talk about Zingerman's again, you kind of went back to them uh, in Finish Big, and maybe you could share our, with our audience a little bit about that story. And, and again, what was your biggest takeaway in writing Finish Big? Well, I should tell you how I came to write Finish Big. I You mentioned that I had a book with uh, Norm Brodsky and that Norm and I, Norm was writing a column. I should say I was writing a column for Norm in Inc. Magazine called mm -hmm. Street Smarts. Yep. And it, it became a very, very popular uh, column. And at one point, and we did it for like years and years and years. And then at one point, one day, he's I called him up to see what we were going to write about. I mean, we had to do this monthly. So we had to decide every month what we were going to write about. And I called him up and he told me, I think I'm going to sell the company. And I said, what? And I was shocked because he'd always loved running his company so much. And I couldn't imagine him without a company. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, I've, I've always had these, I, I wasn't 
ever going to pass this company down to my children who, who weren't interested in taking it over. And I'd always, I've been uh, approached by a lot of people about buying the company, but I had two conditions that, that most people, you know, that would, wouldn't, wouldn't accept. I had some conditions that, that most people wouldn't accept. And, but he had been at a conference and there were some private equity people there and he had, they had also asked him about buying his company and he told them his conditions and they didn't bat an eye. They said, fine. So he said, looks like I'm, I'm going to do this. Um, and I said, well, that's a good thing for us to write about. Let's write about it. What happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start, we'll start with, uh, the offer and we'll call this, we'll call this series, the offer. And it'll, we'll just tell the story as it unfolds. Now, this was great for the magazine. It was great for Norm. Mm. I'm not so sure it was great for the would be purchasers. They would have every month a column appearing about what happened and about the discussions that they'd had previously. And, you know, they would be in meetings and uh, they'd start to say something. They said, wait a minute, Norm, if, if I keep going with this, is, is it going to wind up in Inc. Magazine next month? <laughs> and he, he said, yes, it might. That's, that, that's the deal. Right. And, and so we went through it and it, it developed a huge following. There were lots and lots of people who wanted to know what was going to happen. Was he actually going to go through with the sale? And finally, after months, he decided, yes, I'm going to sell the company. And that was such a big deal at that point that Inc. put him on the cover of the magazine and you know with a cover line that says norm decides to sell oh wow um the deal of the century or whatever mm-hmm. some some superlative so that was great and then and so we we did an article about that and that seemed great and then i needed a we needed a column for the next month and I figured it was going to be about the closing or something like that, or due diligence, something. Like that. So I called him up and I said, okay, Norm, what are we doing next month? He said, well, I changed my mind. I decided I'm not going to sell. Um, I said, Norm, we just published a magazine that's going out to uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people saying that you just landed the deal of the century right this um, is like who shot jr right exactly. you can't undo it yeah 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 and uh he said well i i said i, I i'm i'm shocked he said well actually i'm shocked too mm. and i said well why did you do it he said well it turned out that the person who was the decision maker in this was somebody i realized i could not trust and i said oh um why was that a problem? He said, well, I, you know, they'd made certain stipulations. I'd made certain stipulations about how the employees were going to be treated after yeah. I yeah. left and various other things. And frankly, I just didn't trust that they would abide by that. Wow. And so that was the end of the series known as The Offer. 
And it was obvious that there was a lot of interest among the readers of Inc. magazine about somebody going through this process. Mm. And I saw that. And I actually, I went to my publisher and I actually, his name is Adrian Zakheim. He's at Portfolio Books, which is part of Penguin Random House. And I was, I went to him saying, this was such a, uh, an incredible experience. Uh, shouldn't, maybe we should turn this series of articles into a book. And he um, thought that sounds okay, but he didn't really want to do a series of articles. He said the the fact of, it's obvious that lots of people are very curious about what the whole exit process is about, yeah, and it was something. It was something we never wrote about, Nate. Well, I we think I think wrote we, about yeah, success. We wrote and, about starting businesses and building businesses. Yep. We never got around to to writing about exiting businesses. Yep. And so and, 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 I, and in my practice, Bo, you know, we see this all the time now, where it, it, all of a sudden this whole generation of readers that you had from Inc. and then Forbes and then through Small Giants and a great game of business are now finding themselves kind of graying at the temples and saying, now what do I do? Right. And there's right tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of them. So that's this is a great segue to our next session, which we will be recording here shortly. But ladies and gentlemen, again, I, I want to just uh, say thank you to Bo Burlingham. Bo, I can't even begin to thank you enough for allowing us to uh, fly the finish big flag on our, our, our podcast. And my goal, my vision for this podcast is really to really carry on the legacy of finish big to speak to the hearts of the American entrepreneur, to let them know that they're not alone out there, that there are dozens and if not thousands of other business owners that uh, are willing to share kind of the good, the bad and the ugly of what it means to exit or considering exit a business uh, and and really profile the, the intermediaries and the professionals along the way that they should be turning to. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, I want to thank Mr. Bo Burlingham for his time uh, today. Bo, we're going to have you on again here shortly. And during that show, we're going to talk specifically about the book Finish Big, particularly the elements and some of the big takeaways there. And I know one that we're going to focus on is and we talked about it before we we went live and on the air today is, you know, the, the whole thought of what are you transitioning to? So we look forward to exploring that uh, in the near future. And uh, again, this is Mark Dorman with uh, the Finish Big podcast. Uh, I can be reached at 330-350-5410. Or you can look us up at www.legacybusinessadvisors.com. Bo, thank you very much. And we will talk to you in the near future. Now back to Wendy McConnell. Well, thank you so much. It was great to hear from both of you. Uh, please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. We hope you enjoyed listening to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes are available. Learn more at LegacyBusinessAdvisors.com or call 330-350-5410. Please be aware the information in these podcasts represent the views and opinions of our guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Legacy Business Advisors. The content is for informational and educational purposes only. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your legal or tax professional with any questions regarding your specific situation.